1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode, which is part of our new special series, New Books and Celebration Studies. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing a reference in the field, Dr. Jack Santino, who will talk to us about the collection that he edited, public performances, studies in the carnivalesque and ritualesque published by the University Press of Colorado in 2017. Public Performances offers a deep and wide-ranging exploration of relationships among genres of public performance and of the underlying political motivations that they share. Illustrating the connections among three themes, the political, the carnivalesque, and the ritualesque, the volume provides rich and comprehensive insight into public performance as an assertion of political power. Jack Santino is professor of folklore and popular culture and has served as the director of the Bowling Green Center for Popular Culture Studies. He was the Alexis de Tocqueville Distinguished Professor at the University of Paris, Auburn, 2010-2011. He was a Fulbright Scholar to Northern Ireland and has conducted research in Spain and France. His documentary film, On the Pullman Porters, Miles of Smiles, Years of Struggle, received four Emmy Awards. His research centers on rituals and celebrations, with a particular focus on carnival and political and public ritual as reflective of political, social, and cultural identity. He's the author of numerous books and articles. Jack, welcome to New Books and Celebration Studies. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure
1: to be here, to meet you, to be speaking. With you, and um, I look forward to the conversation. Thank
2: you. So, before we start talking about public performances, could you tell us a bit about yourself and how did you get involved into this particular field, and how did this collection come about? Well, let's see.
1: Um, I'll go back to <laughs> I'll go back to when I was a child. I was growing up in Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, one of the things. In that particular part of the country, is the uh, very pronounced four seasons of the year autumn, winter, spring, and fall, in uh, summer. And each of those is usually celebrated, or they all contain holidays and celebrations that are very seasonally oriented. And I always enjoyed them very much. And I I mentioned this, and I start there because as I grew older, um, and you know, into my teens, my early twenties, I began to realize that it seemed to me among my peers that at a certain point that you were sort of supposed to outgrow the holidays. It wasn't cool anymore to to be very into them. And at some point, I realized that I in fact did really enjoy the various traditions, and I liked the seasonal connections and that was something that was very much a part of me now as i as i continued to age and so on it took me a little while but i after i graduated from college i graduated from boston college and i was out of school for a couple of years but i had become very very i continued by interest in various kinds of uh, traditions and um somebody suggested that there i could go back I, I should probably go back to school. And I discovered that there were folklore programs and, uh, that that was, as probably most of your listeners, it was totally unknown to me. They were serious. You could get a PhD in folklore. And I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania, got a PhD in folklore and folk life. And from there, I was fortunate to be hired by the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. And um, they put on an annual public presentation called the, now it's called the Smithsonian Folklife Festival. Now, while I was working in Washington, I began to talk about my various interests uh, and I did the work that you mentioned on Pullman Porters. Um, I did most of it there but as a staff member in uh, the Smithsonian. But I also was talking about Halloween and how I noticed how it was changing and more and more adults were getting interested in it. And I was approached by uh, a magazine to write an article, and I ended up having an article in Natural History magazine and uh, did a scholarly article and so on. And that led to my writing a, a, a book called All Around the Year, Holidays and Celebrations in American Life. While I was at Fenn and studying folklore, I took a great many courses in cultural anthropology, and I discovered the works of Victor Turner on ritual. Mm -hmm. And probably, and I know as we talk about carnival, you'll talk about uh, Mikhail Bakhtin, but I would say that discovering the works of Victor Turner was probably the most profound intellectual um, discovery that uh, that shaped my career. So, long, I mean, I'm kind of going on here, but those things came together. And um, I took a kind of approach to contemporary celebrations that put into play a lot of the anthropological theory that came out of looking at tribal societies, and so on. Well, I got a job teaching full-time in Bowling Green, Ohio, at the University Bowling Green State University. And uh, while there, had an opportunity to visit Ireland, which I did, uh, and um, was invited in Northern Ireland, which is part of Great Britain. Um, I was invited to uh, submit a Fulbright application. And I studied Halloween in Northern Ireland, which actually is celebrated, you know, among both advocates of British identity and advocates of Irish identity. So that led to a kind, frankly, to a kind of career in public presentation, public ritual, um, and how people mark them, have marked their traditions as political and as uh Markers of identity. Um, there was great, great many, uh, political public rituals such as parades and, uh, and, uh, public funerals that had a strong political, uh, dimension to them in Ireland. And I, so I continued to study in Northern Ireland, do research and write, which in turn led to a book on public memorialization of death. Um, you know, and I got teaching uh, invitations uh, in Spain and in Paris at the Sorbonne. And while I was in Paris, and that was about 10 years ago, I attended the various traditional European carnivals in France, you know, pre-Lenten carnivals. And uh, I've been doing that ever since. Um, and along with that. Uh, looking at elements, carnivalesque elements, in the various street damage, political demonstrations in Paris and in France. And that's sort of where I developed this idea of the ritualesque to accompany the carnivalesque. So that brings you up to date pretty much where I am now. Yes.
2: And uh, so when we were st- first started thinking about doing the special series for the the New Books Network, I was having a hard time trying to define what I meant by celebration studies, right? Because I think my, the definition in my head was much broader than what most people thought when they thought about festivities or celebrations. So your book helped me define this. And uh, so in a sense, I would like to thank you because I think it inspired the series. But as you note here, the, you have an the, the inclusive... That's
1: very nice to hear. Thank you. Oh. Thank you. I'm sorry. But that's very nice to hear. Uh, go ahead,
2: please. Well, thank you for, for, uh, for this work. But as you mentioned here, you have a very inclusive title, right? We talk about public performances and it refers to, and I'm, I'm quoting you, a number of interrelated genres or types of events that tend to share many characteristics. So could you define public performances and what are some of the, these characteristics shared by the such different events and experiences discussed in the chapters of this book?
1: Yeah, um, as you say, it's broad and it's inclusive. But I'll tell you what I am focused on and what I think about and why. I mentioned that I was working uh, for a long time um in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian Institution. And I mentioned that while I was at the University of Pennsylvania, that the works of Victor Turner, the anthropologist on ritual, had a very profound effect on my thinking. Well, while I was in Washington at, at the Smithsonian, our program, our department, was asked by the museum, one of the museums, put on an exhibition with Victor Turner who was alive at that point on Ritual Festival and Celebration and I was chosen, he was the guest curator and I was chosen to work with him on putting together live uh, living demonstrations with different groups of people demonstrating their various ritual traditions now we put on, this, this brought together artifacts that were in the Smithsonian's holdings. And it was, it was an actual museum exhibition um, with different objects. And Victor Turner would, would write the text that he, the, the objects. it was broken up into things like rites of passage, um, uh, seasonal celebrations, and other things such as that and then he would take objects from all over the world that had to do with say birth rituals or had to do with death rituals and he would juxtapose them which is something that i that makes sense to me and uh, so coming out of that i always liked the the terminology of ritual festival and celebration again because it was inclusive and I think there is a difference strictly speaking between if you want to say this pure ritual and pure festival which I if pure festival I take as celebration for its own sake and pure ritual I take as something that is fully intended to cause it's not necessarily intended to to be festive it's intended to make a difference you do it because the religion or the gods or society insist that it be done. So, rites of passage, for instance, are necessary to effect change in a person's life from one stage to the next. A baptism is not thought to be just a fun thing to do in Roman Catholicism, it's thought to be necessary in the spiritual life. Of a child, of a baby, but the I say you can ideally separate these two, but but festivals and festivity is often used ritually, especially when you talk about seasonal celebrations, and they mark the season. They end one season and begin another. American Thanksgiving, you know, is the opening of the Christmas season and this sort of thing. So I like the idea of using inclusive terms. And then I also personally am interested in, uh, other kinds of public performances such as parades or, uh, um, well, as, as it, as it developed into various kinds of, um, ad hoc demonstrations that were ritualized, such as um, there's a take back the streets movement where people process with candles and so on. You know, so it's very broad in that on, on the other hand, I'm not somebody who thinks that ritual means any routine or any repeated action. I think it needs to have Some conscious sense of transcendence, some reference to, uh, the sacred, not necessarily the religious, but the sacred. Now, that said, I say this in a lot of my writing. Some rituals are very, very festive. You know, there's hilarity at, uh, various Native American rituals, various, uh, Jewish rituals. Um, you know, there is, a great deal of festivity as a part of a lot of sacred events. And likewise, rituals themselves, sacred rituals, very often form a part or a component of various festivals. If you think of festivals as a period of celebration, so if we think of, say, Christmas season as a festive season, so religious qualities, religious events are a part of it but so are parties, and so is gift-giving, and so are other components. So I thought it best to be inclusive in that regard. But beyond that, I tend to think I personally am less interested in some other kinds of uh, events. If I'm talking about this, it's worth saying also that while I'm very interested in traditional events. I'm interested in tradition in as it exists and as it's used now. So I am very interested in the ways people create or adapt or use emergent um, uh, contingent uh, events uh, and respond to events. I mentioned take back the night where they use ritual ideas such as procession and using candle lit procession, but not in a tr- a way that was seen before. We've seen things like it before, but they were used for a very specific purpose. Now, so if that's at all, if that makes any sense at all, uh, I hope it does. But in terms of the book, I've developed this idea that when I was talking earlier, I said that some festivity is done for its own sake. And often, an event like Carnival, for instance, traditional Carnival, is very often meant to be enjoyed at the moment, even if there is inversion, social inversion, a lot of political mockery and satire, uh, parody, uh, gender reversal, all these kinds of things. But it's also understood that when it's over, you go back to everyday life as it existed prior to the event. However, there are also events that are that contain many of those same qualities, but that are intended to change everyday life. So they're more like ritual than they are like pure festival. In other words, they're using symbolic actions. And some symbols generally, but they're doing it to make a change that's permanent, at least in intention. So things like um, uh, various kinds of demonstrations and, uh, you know, there's a lot of events, political events and so on, that are carnival-esque but are not carnival. But I think something like, say, Pride Day, or, uh, you know, is meant not yet, they're very carnival a gay pride event, usually, in the cities that I've uh, seen them. But they're also intended to have an effect on the participants and the spectators. They're intended to, 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 to bring people closer together and to uh, get people used to the idea that homosexuality is as much a part of society as heterosexuality. It's intended to make a difference. So I see them as ritual in addition to being carnivalesque. esque. So the book, I tried to get events that range from straightforward carnival, traditional carnival, and traditional ritual, and that move increasingly more toward something that is almost entirely ritual esque, such as the uh, gay men's chorale. Uh, event, and things such as that.
2: So, uh, the as as I mentioned in the beginning, the book deals with the ritual-esque, with the carnival-esque, but also with with the political dim- dimensions of yeah. these events, right? And you say here that these events and actions are always emergent from a social context and are always political in some sense of the world. Could you talk about that?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that you know we can use the word political to refer specifically to politics um like currently in the united states with the various uh, election politics but we also use the word political to talk about uh um social uh and cultural uh, uh power relations and um and sometimes very subtle social and cultural power relations so Various. I mentioned the take back the night um what got me started down that road was going back to Northern Ireland with all the political unrest that existed there and I started there in the early nineties and there was you know there's there's violence directed toward uh Northern Ireland is officially associated with the United Kingdom. And it's um it's officially a part of the British islands and British culture, and yet it's uh, part of Ireland as well and it, as a result there is there is separatist movements and guerrilla warfare, and sometimes it's more intense than others. and it was fairly intense while I was there, and there were a great many overtly political expressions, like the parades that for one side or another. However, there are also this phenomenon that we've seen internationally where when someone dies an untimely death, sudden death of some kind, and very often in Northern Ireland, innocent people were killed uh, as a result of the, the kind of civil war that existed there. Very often, the place where that person died this untimely death becomes the site of uh, ritual behavior where people leave flowers, leave candles, leave notes. And um, I witnessed a good deal of that while I was there. And I was involved with some people who lost family members. And I was thinking that the difference between ritualizing the place where the person died, this untimely death, and the ritual actions that occur in the cemetery or at home. The difference was in the first case, they're very public. The, sh- the, I call them spontaneous shrines. The spontaneous shrines, and we see them in other contexts, the roadside cross where someone dies because of a car crash or other kinds of things like that. They call attention to themselves in very public space. And there's always a dual message. One part of the message is commemoration of the individual who died. But the other part is to condemn the cause of death, whether it was drunk driving or whether it was paramilitary activity or police violence or something along those lines. And that's what gave me this idea that sometimes ritual actions are intended to be political events and meant to be activist events. And from there, uh, I started thinking about how I mentioned earlier, uh, pride, uh, celebrations, gay pride celebrations, how they have in their intention, no matter how much festivity, no matter how much fun, there is in the intention a social purpose having to do with the, um, legitimacy of the existence of the people involved in their culture. And even something, I don't know, less controversial, let's say, something like Earth Day. Their events that people come up with to celebrate Earth Day are intended to foster an attitude toward the environment. It's not intended simply to just be a day off or just be fun. So, i think that in many many cases the use of festivity or fun or ritual or carnival time out of time is an opportunity to make to to engage in activity that is intended to be efficacious but i think that uh when we talk about something like Saying something like it's always contingent and always political in some sense. I had in mind there just the idea that people are involved with other people. If an example of something where it's not necessarily self conscious, I mentioned that I've been doing research in France and I've been looking at um, traditional carnival and one of the More traditional, more long-standing winter, late winter, early spring carnivals that I've, uh, that I've gotten involved with is in the city of Dunkirk in Northern Ireland. I'm sorry, in uh, Northern France. And it's very working class. It's not at all, it's not like New Orleans, at least not like downtown New Orleans. And, um, it's not like, um, Venice or Nice. Where there are great um, floats, and that the city, you know, it's become a big tourist kind of industry. Dunkirk is largely still the carnival is the participants, and it's uh, it's quite it's quite it can be very rowdy, um, very colorful. There are certain ritualized events, but one of the things I've noticed is that as an outsider, one could say that it's very male-focused, the the values, even in this period of inversion and, you know, all the rules go out the window and the people take over the streets and all of that. It's true. But at the same time, um, like I say, it's rowdy. And you kind of have to get out of people's way if they come plowing through. There are songs that are sung traditionally. And the songs are, to say they allude, is an understatement. They're incredibly uh, taboo-breaking. And, and men and women sing them happily and all the rest. But when you translate them and I've had I was there with a woman last uh, two years ago, I guess, and um, she was happily translating them for me. And they were they involved incest. They involved uh, uh, all sorts of uh, stuff on uh, defecation and so on. And all of them are, you know, the woman talking about how she loves to have sex with her brother and then with her father. And, you know, and I find myself thinking, you know, I don't really see a reversal or a space here in which women take center stage. I'm seeing a different kind of expression of patriarchy or of male dominance. So I think that even in events that aren't intended have a political end involved, that there are um, ramifications that need to be or
0: can be examined. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: That's really fascinating because my previous interview for this series was a book called Carnival Is Woman about Carnival in Trinidad. So uh carnival can uh take very different shapes in different parts of the world so which brings me uh, I would like to talk about the carnival section in the book right uh why are are the the uh, the, the chapters here you know um, let's talk about the how you organize the book right how are these chapters dealing with uh traditional carnival and uh what you say that it, they look at the social conflict that it, that it embedded in the performances? Could you talk a little bit about carnival?
1: Yeah, um, I'd be interested. By the way, in the previous interview, the Trinidad, because one of the uh, the um, I've, I'm interested in following up this idea of woman's place, and I realized what you said was absolutely correct. The carnival takes different shape. All over the place. You know, it's, it's a word that refers to a number of different uh, um, uh, instances. And the difference between European carnival and uh, the carnival in the Americas, you know, in Central and South America is uh, different largely. I mean, the major difference there would be the uh, African presence in uh, in the Americas which is now feeding back into some of the European situations, the previous colonial powers, such as like the Notting Hill Carnival in London and I'm seeing uh I'm seeing it in uh in France as well. But um but how organized it? Well um we had the article by uh historian Sam Kinzer and he Talked about, he compared a European with, uh, you know, um, an early modern Nuremberg European event with the uh, more contemporary um, event that he himself has uh, been involved with, I guess, in Trinidad himself for quite some time. And how, you know, how legitimate uh, uh, those kinds of broad comparisons can be. I'm not quite sure, but it was an interesting, interesting uh, approach. And um, Roger Abrams talked about well, something I mentioned two seconds ago, which was the whole African basis of, uh, of American carnival. The idea that from New Orleans south, you have this Afro Caribbean uh, carnival. And his thesis, and it's not just his, is well, let me back up a little bit. The idea that Africans in the New World obviously come in largely as enslaved people and they have very specific and particular history, unlike the Europeans. And um so when there were periods of celebration permitted to Africans. They were according to the work calendar, but all of which in turn was based on the Christian calendar. So in other words, days off might come around Christmas and Easter and, uh, and times such as those. So then they were free to free, you know, limited freedom to celebrate in their own ways. The white Europeans would look at what they did and say, okay, well, that's, that's their carnival celebration, but it was kind of an imposition of our terms. So there's some schools of thought that think that the, uh, the African dimension to American celebration, which derives from various African masquerades, usually those masquerades were done in, um, ritual context, uh, rites of passage and so on, that they, we're interpreting them according to we, the white Europeans were interpreting them according to, uh, their understandings, but they might've been very different. That said, the theory was that in the, uh, African-derived events, such as the Mardi Gras Indians in New Orleans, which again, you find throughout, um, in one way or another, there are wild Indians and other kinds of things in the Caribbean and down into um south america they uh that there, Roger's idea was that there's a co- a dimension of conflict that is being expressed and enacted in all of these, whereas with uh, the European style it's literally we 're not working we 're celebrating, and uh, we can mock. Th- but it's not the same thing as uh, a uh, different groups, different, different crews or different tribes or whatever, as they're called in different uh, uh, black contexts and the ways in which those uh, embody um, a kind of conflict because of a different situation that those individuals find themselves in. So I wanted to begin simply with, like I said, with something that's that's straightforward carnival or straightforward ritual, rather than then say it's more difficult for some people to understand what this term would mean if it's you know if I'm already using sort of exceptions to it. Um, so that was the theory for for bringing those two, uh, to confirm you know putting them placing them in positions of a kind of privilege to, to, to introduce the book. And then I think the next article was um, was Beverly Stochi and with the uh, political dimension of carnival and uh, our ritual. And uh, I just wanted an, a kind of theoretical statement up front that says, you know, we can look at these different kinds of events and see that they perform different social and cultural tasks.
2: You sort of mentioned this, right, Uh, when you were talking about this idea of doing comparative studies. But uh, we have here different case studies of parades and processions in very different parts of the world that take very different shapes. And um, could you comment on what do you think are some of the advantages and and possible shortcomings when we, you know, look at similar events in different places and contexts?
1: Yeah, I would say that, um, one of the first, of all, I think parades are interesting because when you use the word parade, most people have simply, uh, a, just a, you know, a sense that they're intended to be fun and that they're a spectacle that you, you go to, to watch and enjoy yourself. And, um, one of the, uh, now that's the, the terminologies that we're using throughout are words such as ritual that and festival that people use every day and they use it in different ways. So it is important, I think, to find to define terms. But um one of the things I like to say is all parades are not created equal. And what I mean by that, and if you don't mind, let me give you an example. The um uh, I'm speaking to you from my, where I live now and work, Bowling Green, Ohio. And they have here in November something they call the holiday parade. And in fact, it's entirely a Christmas parade. Um, you know, I mean, but it's done usually in the middle of November before Thanksgiving. And the purpose of that is to say we're kicking off the uh, the Christmas season and the various, it goes up and down Main Street in town and um, all the stores uh, contribute and because they want to increase holiday sale. And there's very little, uh, there's very little about that that is um, not obvious. The various components of the parade are both Local and communal that is their their high school band marching bands from the area and local churches, but also local department stores and they put on some interesting you know displays, but they're also usually giving out coupons to this bystander and of course tossing candy to the to the to the kids along the side and so forth and I remember I was and it's a very, it's a, it's a well attended event. It, it bring, it's got a lot of positive, uh, social qualities It brings the community together. People see each other and say hello and talk and so on. I'm not, uh, putting that down, but I was also there one time with a member, a fellow professor who was in the sciences. And a lot of the, on campus at the university I teach. And a lot of the scientists can be very skeptical of the kinds of studies that people like me do. And this one person who was very arrogant, turned to me and he said, ha, I'll bet for you this is doing research, going to this. So I said to him, I said, okay, look, first of all, there's a great deal of literature on parades. I said, let's think about it this way. Who gets to parade? Who gets Main Street? Who gets the traffic stop and police protection? And what is in that parade? And who is the most, who's got the most um, uh, obvious and elaborate float? Just the department steward. And like I say, there's a lot of good to it, but all of these department stores, even the churches, we're giving out literature as they walk down. All of them are essentially advertising themselves, and all of them were um, trying to uh, build up constituencies and bring people to spend money. I said, now compare it to, I mean, even in the same town, there's a Memorial Day parade, and it's much, much smaller. It has far fewer. Uh, uh a much smaller audience and, and it just it's very short because it's it, it's very much a military event and while people are very respectful there's not this commercial uh quality to it still it's main street and police and traffic lights but if you start thinking about other kinds of procession. If you start thinking about parades and other kinds of ways, I've been to uh, peace marches, anti-war marches, and so on, and they very often aren't allowed on the street. They can only walk down the sidewalk. They don't change the traffic pattern so the people doing it get broken up. And I've been in situations where the police are there, but they don't act, they don't they're not providing a great deal of um protection against uh, counter protesters and so on so i say again different parades have different qualities and the ones that we take for granted such as the macy's parade at thanksgiving or national parades at 4th of july all of those are reinforcing our central uh normalized um, uh, ideologies of both capitalism and of nationalism, and I went on to talk about in Northern Ireland how parade some people will die over not allowing a parade through its neighborhood mm-hmm. and some people will kill over insisting that a parade can go through any public street. I said there are people willing to kill, people willing to die for the parades in Northern Ireland. For a long time in Belfast, you could celebrate what people like to refer to. They'd say the Protestant uh, parades of uh, July the 12th. They were all day. uh, They were in all six counties. Um, they took over Center City Belfast, but there wouldn't be that same kind of activity on the Catholic St. Patrick's Day. They weren't allowed to parade in Center City Belfast on the basis that it could cause unrest. They could only do it in certain neighborhoods and so on. So there's much more to be said about parades than first meets the eye. So I say that it, it just in general, that in any of these genres, usually what's interesting to me and to you and to probably our listeners is not always articulated in the parade. They instead are seen simply as harmless uh, spectacles and fun. But in reality, you know, they can be of very uh, serious importance. So we have a couple of uh, uh, articles on some of those politically the dimensions, both in Ireland, which is historical, and um, the uh, Puerto Rican Day parade in New York, which is obviously, again, all about ethnic identity. And also, I wanted, that was an article about flags, so I wanted to bring flags into it as well because you can get very you know, specific on components, but flags have all those same dimensions that parades in general do. You know, they're carrying a symbol and people can get very, very concerned about uh, even, you know, taking an American flag and making it a rainbow flag or turning it into uh, now this talk of the thin blue line on the American flag or the Confederate flag. that controversy in the United States. So all of these things, as I say, on the surface are pretty straightforward, but a lot lurks underneath.
2: Yeah, it's very reassuring to hear you say all that because in in very informal situations when people ask me, what do you study? And I say celebrations, I get very suspicious looks. Sort of like, oh, you go have fun. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you, I mean, that never goes away.
1: I did a um, a presentation on campus once on the Northern Ireland material. And as I said, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about material. And it was always the, I did the parades. I did what I call my spontaneous shrines. I had interviews with people that I played uh, who had lost family members. And they'd break your heart. You know, they would break your heart. And I would, uh, and the presentations always, are very uh, well received. But the person who was in charge of the presentation, even after hearing it, then said, well, Jack Studies celebrations, you know, woo-hoo, lots of fun. And I thought to myself, I just showed you how, you know, I mean, it's, it's frustrating that when people hear those words, that's how they respond to it. And it's very difficult to, uh, to get people to believe that uh, what you're dealing with is um, it's fun to do it because if you I mean for me fun is being deeply engaged in what I am interested in mm-hmm. but it's it's not you know it's, it's not just uh, mindless um, entertainment not at all so yeah but I mean it's very very frustrating to, to, to people just Don't understand uh, what it is that we're all about.
2: Yeah. So uh, this this brings me to a a section in in the book that um, really resonated with me is the section on carnivals of grief. You sort of mentioned it, but could you tell us a little bit about that and how or if you see it reflected in this current wave of protests against systematic racism and police. Uh, brutality.
1: Yes, I do see it reflected in this current wave of protest, and, um, and I've been very interested and fascinated by this current wave, uh, both for its own reasons, because of the issues involved. I did go to a Black Lives Matter uh, event here in town in June, I guess it was, shortly after uh, the events in uh, Minneapolis. And the police handled it pretty well. I mean, the police took a knee, and the police captain and uh you know they presented themselves at least because there was a point when some of the and they were pretty much i think student leaders but uh they uh they met on the lawn in front of the police headquarters, and they, there both the police uh superintendent and the uh, mayor uh when challenged, took a knee and um, they, they, they seemed to be very respectful, which I thought was a very encouraging sign. But there were then the uh, various speeches on this little village green. And, you know, as I have been in other situations, but I was just struck with just how deep, deeply emotional the uh, speakers were. And how deep-seated the uh, the anger and the uh, frustration was on their path. And I think it's very moving. The um, To go back a little bit, with the, the term Carnival of Grief, I was, um, there was a, are you familiar at all? I, I think I referred to it in, the, in that essay. Um, in Paris, there's a satirical, they were just in the news too this week, there's a satirical newspaper it's called charlie ebdo and uh it it's full i mean it's what people would call politically incorrect and in fact it's very uncomfortable it's it's all cartoons but they're full of racial stereotype uh if you know jewish stereotypes uh visually um you know arab stereotypes a lot of anti-catholicism so a lot of well anti-catholic a lot of um Priests with altar boys, and this kind of, you know, based on the uh, various scandals in the Catholic Church of uh, priests molesting uh, um, children. So it touches on all those things, but it does them with drawings that can be difficult to uh, to support. So at some point, I guess they do a lot of. Uh, they, there's a lot of. Uh, concern in France and in Paris about uh, the Northern, North African immigrants. So they're usually uh, marginalized and ghettoized, and also they tend to be uh, Muslim. And there was a lot of, they would draw a lot of Muslim stereotypes and so on, including renditions of the Prophet Muhammad, which is forbidden as I understand it in Islam, to do a uh, a rendition of the human form. And they did it as an in-your-face kind of, uh, you know, no one's going to tell us that we can't do this. So they hit a lot of caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad. And then it was February five or so years ago, I guess, when uh, two men, two or three men, broke into the Charlie Hebdo headquarters and just opened fire the cartoonists and various people, and several people were killed, and it was a very, very shocking act of urban terrorism. And the entire, I mean, the entire world responded. It was a major, um, it was a major event. Well, about a few weeks later, I happened to be in Paris. I think for Carnival. In fact, I had gone over, and um, I thought, well, uh, you know, I should go by the Charlie Hebdo headquarters and see. What kind of response they had, because I had come up, I had written about this idea of spontaneous shrines, and I wanted to see what was going on. In fact, I'll be even more specific. I had gone, Paris was trying to rejuvenate a carnival that had pretty much petered out by the end of the 19th century, and I had attended that. I knew some of the people involved, and it, it was pretty much just a parade that ended at a certain plaza in Place de la République. A, um, when I got to the, this plaza, it was full of graffiti and, uh, that was responding to the Charlie Hebdo murders. And people were laying wreaths and people were writing on the plaza itself and so on. So I thought, okay, this is pretty amazing. And uh, I went off to Charlie Hebdo headquarters. Which was still under guard by soldiers and so on. But at the nearest intersection is the place where people were leaving. We had created a spontaneous shrine and it was quite a large one. It was actually in three or four corners of this intersection. And it was, I find these things overwhelming. I find them very, very moving. And I was, and I was thought and people were there and people were lighting candles and so on. And, uh, and I have photographs of this on my Facebook page, by the way, of all of these uh, things that I'm referring to. But um, uh, as I was reading it, reading the messages, looking at the offerings and so on, I found myself thinking, I feel like I need to write about this because it's so powerful. But I've already written on spontaneous shrines. I have a book called Spontaneous Shrines and the Public Memorialization of Death. And I thought to myself, do I have anything left to say about it? However, at the same time, as I just told you, I had been to Carnival. I had been to a a symposium, a colloquium on Carnival. And that was in my mind. And somebody, and I don't remember who, let's just say it this way, I've heard Carnival defined as an excess of signifiers. And that's jargonistic, but I thought that you know if you go to a carnival it's there's music and there's dance and there's costume and there's food and there's drink and there's movement it's an excess of all of those things all at once. Festival generally has all that quality of being you know multi- has multi multiple genres and so on. So there's that sense of an excess of of input, and I thought, here I am looking at this, and these are material. This is material culture that people have left materialization of emotion, if you will. But but it was an excess of signifiers. I mean, you know, there was piles of notes and wreaths and candles and some of the because. because it was seen as Arabs, they were Jewish uh, responses to it and there were a lot of drawings and cartoons because they were cartoonists who had died and on and on and I thought to myself, well, excess is signifiers, but it's not carnival as such, but because carnival is usually something we think of as fun, as positive but I thought to myself that it is an overwhelming expression of grief and grievance. So I came up with that thought, and I still am not sure whether it's the best terminology. The carnival of grief. But when I watch and see the various kinds of things that are happening as we speak in the United States, um, and since since the killing of George Floyd uh, and the subsequent various violent deaths that have happened, I found myself again thinking and wanting to suggest the concept of a carnival of grief. But again, I hesitate or grievance, uh, grief and grievance. I hesitate simply because I don't know if carnival is an appropriate word there. The other night, and you might, I'd like to hear your response on this. I don't know if you saw it, but this past week, both Trump and Biden went to Kenosha, Wisconsin. And Biden met with the family and the various local community members of the man who had been shot seven times in the back. And there was this clip I saw of a young woman who spoke in a church to the candidate, Joe, uh, Joe Biden. And she said, I'm just going to speak from my heart now. She said, there's so much heavy anger, people are heavily angry, and people are hurting. And I thought to myself, this term here, again, I wanted to suggest to her, it was like carnival grief, that it's an inversion of what we usually think carnival is. So that's the best I can do in trying to, you know, trying to explain what I mean by that. Um, but that's how it came about. And it it's
2: something I think about. Yes, and I, I think we, we need a, a term for it. And I, and I agree with you that people might be uh, confused when they hear the word as, uh, carnival associated right with grief. But there is something happening and, and, and we need to try to uh, understand and, and, and put it into to some terms that we can make sense of but the both visits from yes. both candidates seemed there was a performative a public performance uh element to it very different the people they decided to to meet the 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 visual material culture associated with all of that, that yes it's it's really something we need to, to think more about um yeah. but uh so yes, I, well sorry go ahead please no i was just i was going to agree
1: with you and you use the word performative there, and I appreciate that because uh I I haven't used it yet, but it is something going all the way back to the early stuff with um my Northern Ireland uh um, materials and, and spontaneous shrines, that they were performative, meaning not just that they were you have to perform them. There is that. You have to parade, you know, you have to actually perform it. But the idea also that they are intended to to make some kind of a statement and, and so on. And yeah, I think if you examine those two those two events um, as performance uh, uh, in Kenosha this past week, it's obvious that they're intended for different audiences, they're intended to make totally different statements, and so on. So I actually appreciate your feedback on that because you're right. I, I too, think that terminology is important and it's good to have words that actually mean something, that aren't just, uh, you know, jargon, that that seem to answer a need to describe something that hasn't been articulated yet in the scholarship or in the literature.
2: Well, uh, this has been amazing. So, but I would like to conclude our interview with a couple of questions, if it's okay with you, about books and projects. So could you recommend any other book to our listeners who may want to learn a little bit more about this subject after they read the book we just talked about?
1: Well, you know, I think that um, honestly, and this goes back a ways, but I think that I mentioned that the work of Victor Turner on uh, Ritual was profoundly important to me. I think, and there's a collection of his essays, called The Forest of Symbols. Now, that, you know, I think was published and might have been published in the late 60s. So it doesn't address issues of politics and power and gender and race and so on the way the more contemporary literature does. But I think it analyzes and gets at the properties of ritual and symbols better than anyone else has, has done. And he also edited a book. There's a book that came out from the Smithsonian called Celebration, A World of, oh no, it's called Celebration, Studies in Festivity and Ritual. And, um, that, uh, edited by Nick de Turner. And again, that's probably in the seventies, but it's a very good collection. Um, more recently, you know, we had, <laughs> we, it, it, the hour's gone by, I guess, but we, uh, we didn't mention Bakhtin particularly, but the concept of carnivalesque comes from the work of Mikhail Bakhtin and his studies of Rabelais, the, um, French author. <laughs> Excuse me. And his, his construction of the idea of carnivalesque has been profoundly influential. And, um, and that's something that people should be aware of. Um, I don't know. Uh, I without you know. I don't want to my own horn. You mentioned the um, we're talking today about the book uh, public performances, which you know coming back again to terminology. I decided to use the word the phrase public performances simply because I was going to be wide range over ritual, festival, and public display, and try to pull in a variety of different kinds of things. But I'd like to mention this book, small book that I wrote on the Northern Irish materials, and it's called Signs of War and Peace. And then I forget the subtitle, like Social Conflict in uh, Northern Ireland. But um, but that's really, I think, where a lot of what came later in my thinking uh, derived from. So I'd like to mention that. And you know, there's so much now. I think there is developing a kind of field of, of, you know, you're working and I'm working with the um, journal of festive studies. And we see that these different terms, sometimes it's festive studies, sometimes it's ritual studies. Sometimes it's people just doing carnival, but people are reading the same literature. They're reading historians, they're reading anthropologists, they're reading cultural uh, studies, uh, work, folklorist, and so on, and I do think there's coalescing a kind of um, a kind of field there, and quite possibly this journal of festival studies could serve as a as kind of a central uh, organ for that uh, for that kind of material.
2: Yeah, I'm particularly excited about the interdisciplinarity of the the, the material that we're receiving yep. and. Uh... We need to find a, a more uh, cohesive term because sometimes, as you said, we say celebration studies, festive studies. But I, I, I absolutely agree with you that there's there's a field emerging here and people are thinking similar things. And but yeah. we're starting to find each other. So that's important. <laughs> yes,
1: that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think we're starting to find
2: each other. Do you have any new projects on the works? Anything that you're uh, thinking about working on?
1: Well, what I'm thinking about working on, in some ways, COVID, the, uh, current, uh, confinement has set me back because I haven't been able to go back over to Europe at all, um, canceled a couple of, um, uh, conference appearances and so on. But I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm still, uh, developing some of the ideas we've talked about where I've been looking at some of the French carnival. Uh, I've been thinking about the women in the role of women. I have an article forthcoming in a book. Uh, the book is forthcoming. It's not mine. Somebody else edited it. But it's on the Women's March of 2017. And um, I have an article on that. And I, you know, I, which, again, something that was very carnivalesque but wasn't carnival. And I was looking specifically at the Washington, D.C. march, even though it was all over the country and all over the world. And that's what I, you know, when I was in Dunkirk, when I've been in Dunkirk, being hosted by, a, a, a you know, a married woman with two kids and so on. Um, I found myself thinking this carnival is not the kind of f- statement that the women's March is. And the imagery isn't the same. And, uh, so I'm curious about some of those ideas, and also, you know, this idea of carnival of grief. I'm still, in your comments now, have got me thinking maybe it's something I should pursue a little more deeply um, because we're seeing it this this summer. We're seeing a great deal of it, and uh, you know, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm working on the next. I'm working on developing new ideas. Is where I am right now.
2: Well, Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, I'm I'm happy to do it anytime, and uh, I like to uh, listen to the podcast as they uh, as they come out because it is something, like you say, we're finding each other, and the more we and uh, the more communication that exists, the better. So, I appreciate you reaching out to me to do this interview. It's something I'm happy
2: to do. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books and Celebration Studies, until we find a different title for it, a new special series for the New Books Network. I just spoke to Jack Santino about the collection that he edited, Public Performances, Studies in the Carnivalesque and Ritualesque, published by the University Press of Colorado in 2017. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.